Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and sexual assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. On February 9th, 1980, Ted Bundy headed into his sentencing hearing expecting the worst. He had already been convicted of multiple murders. He desperately needed the jury's sympathy to avoid the death penalty. So the charismatic killer pulled one last trick out of his sleeve. To show them his softer side, Bundy called his girlfriend, Carol Ann Boone, as a character witness. She insisted he was a kind, warm, patient man, the complete opposite of a deranged killer. But her words weren't enough. They had to take things one step further. In a move that shocked the court, Bundy asked Boone if she would marry him while she was still on the stand. With a twinkle in her eye and an excited giggle, she answered, yes. At first, it seemed like a hypothetical question or a joke, but no one was laughing when Bundy brought out a notary public that had been waiting on standby. They stamped an official marriage license. The unconventional wedding floored the jury. Perhaps even more surprising was that Bundy and Boone's relationship lasted for years after his trial. But what started out as a crude stunt would eventually devolve into a bitter, scandalous divorce. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a Spotify original from Parcast. This is the final episode of our three-part special about finding love in lockup. We're taking a look at the ways inmates form relationships in prison, the issues that complicate these romances, and the high-profile cases of love gone right and wrong. You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Last week, we covered three prison love stories that all took dangerous turns. This week, we'll examine three more infamous romances between prisoners and civilians living life on the outside. Some of these relationships seem to work, but only for a little while. We'll explore the shocking confessions, secrets, and tragic crimes that put an end to their forbidden love. We'll have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hi, I'm Blair. Want to hear something scary? 
Join me as I read the creepiest urban legends, folk tales, and ghost stories that I learn on my travels around the world and that we receive from listeners like you. But only if you think you can handle it. Listen on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, sweet screams. Few prison relationships are more notorious than the one between serial killer Ted Bundy and Carol Ann Boone. Though they never had a traditional romance, they did meet before his incarceration, while Bundy was dating another woman. In 1974, the two were co-workers at a Washington state government agency that searched for missing women. Ironically, at the time, Bundy had already kidnapped, raped, and killed around 13 of his victims. But he was an expert at keeping the darkness lurking in his heart secret from the outside world. Boone, a twice-divorced single mother, only saw the likable, charismatic facade that Bundy presented to the outside world. Like nearly everyone else, she found him charming and intriguing. She later said, I liked Ted immediately. We hit it off well. He struck me as being a rather shy person with a lot more going on under the surface than what was on the surface. While they started off as friends, at some point their relationship became something more, though Bundy didn't immediately break things off with his other girlfriend. He and Boone remained close even after Bundy started making headlines. She stuck by his side after he was arrested for kidnapping and murder, several times. She believed in his innocence even when he repeatedly slipped away from police custody. Boone even apparently aided in one of Bundy's most infamous getaways. In 1977, she visited Bundy in jail. Supposedly, the two spent two hours holding hands and staring affectionately into each other's eyes. Guards assumed they were dating, but the love fest was actually just a cover, allowing Boone to smuggle cash straight into Bundy's hands. She knew Bundy was accused of brutal, heinous atrocities, yet she was willing to put her freedom on the line to help him. Before I continue with Carol Ann Boone's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for the show. Boone likely went above and beyond for Bundy while he was in prison in an attempt to show her loyalty. According to Canadian Inmates Connect founder, Melissa Fazina, support like Boone's is often expected in relationships where one party is incarcerated. Perhaps it can act as a replacement for the traditional duties of a romantic partner, like preparing meals or attending social gatherings. Fazina notes that you can still have a relationship but you don't have to be as committed in terms of cooking dinner every night and going to obligatory family functions. Instead, you can smuggle your boyfriend cash to help fund his life on the lamb. And that's exactly what happened. Thanks to Boone's help, Bundy escaped custody on December 30th, 1977. He used the money to leave Colorado, fleeing from the state before the prison guards even noticed he was gone. Luckily, his freedom didn't last. The police finally caught up with Bundy and rearrested him in February of 1978. That didn't stop Boone from rushing to his aid once again. In June of 1979, 
Bundy appeared in court to face charges for assault and the murder of two women at a Florida University sorority house. It was the final straw for Bundy's previous longtime girlfriend, who effectively cut off communication with him before the trial. Boone, however, stayed by his side. Bundy told true crime writer Anne Rule that he and Boone became very, very close. In fact, their relationship flourished. Boone still firmly believed Bundy was innocent. She gave up her career and moved along with her young son across the country to be close to him. Bundy cynically took advantage of her loyalty to try and help his case. He made Boone his spokesperson to the outside world. She tirelessly talked to the media on his behalf, insisting that the police had the wrong man. She was present in the courtroom as well, supporting him throughout the trial and even helping him dispute evidence. The prosecution's key exhibit was a bite mark taken from a victim's buttocks. Bundy's crooked and chipped front teeth matched the bite, but he argued otherwise. He claimed that he chipped his tooth while in jail in March of 1978, two months after the Chi Omega murders occurred in January. To prove this, he called Boone to the witness stand. During her testimony, Boone alleged that in late 1977, she visited him at a Colorado jail for seven consecutive days. She recalled that at the time, Bundy's front tooth wasn't chipped. It was a clever ploy, but ultimately unsuccessful. On July 24, 1979, a jury convicted Bundy on two counts of murder and burglary, plus three counts of first-degree attempted murder. He was sentenced to death. That wasn't the end of his legal troubles. In 1980, after his second trial, Bundy was convicted of sexually assaulting and murdering 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. Now, with three counts of murder to his name, he knew it was all over. Not even a successful appeal could save him from execution. But during his sentencing, Boone had a last-minute idea to help Bundy and get what she wanted. In her research, she came across an obscure Florida law that stated a declaration of marriage in a courtroom could be considered a legal wedding. It's likely she pitched this plan because she wanted to be Bundy's wife before he died. Bundy went along with it because he hoped the courtroom nuptials might soften the jury toward him. So on February 9th, 1980, Bundy married Boone when she took the stand as a character witness. It was a dramatic gesture, but didn't succeed in lessening the verdict. The very next day, the jury recommended another death sentence for Bundy. There would be no honeymoon for the newlyweds. Bundy tried to appeal both decisions to no avail. While he remained in Florida State Prison, Boone remained devoted to her husband and still fully confident that he was innocent. She visited him in prison every week and just like she did in Colorado, she brought contraband with her. But this time she wasn't just bringing in cash. According to journalists who conducted interviews with Ted Bundy while he was on death row, Boone allegedly hid marijuana in her body cavities to bring to Bundy during visits. After receiving the drug from her, he snuck it back to his cell by stuffing it in his rectum. 
Their devotion was intense, and their rule-breaking wasn't limited to smuggling drugs. Around this time, Boone told Bundy she wanted to have a child. Florida State Prison didn't allow conjugal visits, but they found a way to have sex in the jail anyway. According to Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me, many of the inmates bribed the guards to facilitate these visits, including Bundy. Nine months later, Boone got her wish. She gave birth to their daughter, Rosa, in 1982. It seemed like the couple could handle any obstacle in their relationship, thanks to Boone's extraordinary confidence in Bundy. She didn't seem set back by the social stigma she had to endure as Bundy's wife. She stayed strong through it all because she really believed her husband was innocent. As we discussed in part one of this series, those who are romantically involved with inmates almost always convince themselves that their partners aren't guilty. In 2018, author Sheila Eisenberg told CNN that Boone was a prime example of this tendency. If the illusion of innocence is ever threatened, the very foundation of that relationship is shaken. And that's exactly what eventually happened. While Bundy was waiting on death row, he finally started speaking publicly about his crimes. He sat down for long-form interviews with journalists Stephen Michaud and Hugh Ainsworth. At that point, he didn't have much to lose. He openly confessed to murder. And not just to the killings that earned him his convictions, he eventually admitted to murdering at least 30 women. Because of these statements, it's been theorized that Bundy also came clean to Boone around the same time, or perhaps she realized on her own that he was guilty after all. All we know for certain is that something drove Boone to divorce Bundy in 1986. That year, she fled Florida with her daughter and son, stopped all contact with Bundy, and tried to start anew. Rumors have circulated that she went into hiding, changing her and her children's names. Boone ultimately divorced Bundy, a crushing end that many who enter into relationships with inmates know all too well. A 2014 study by criminologists Sonia Sienik and Eric Stewart found that these couples don't have the best success rate. Each year of prison increases their chance of divorce by 32%. It's no surprise that marrying a prison inmate comes with plenty of challenges. According to the Chicago Tribune, some couples feel their partnership isn't taken seriously by others because one person is in jail. Meanwhile, the relationship itself tends to be imbalanced. Like Boone, the spouse on the outside is often prone to loneliness, especially because their conjugal visits are regulated by the prison system. The romance can also take a financial toll on the person on the outside. The cost of constant visits, phone calls, and cash allowances add up. Even so, passion can triumph over it all. Some couples go to extraordinary lengths to make things work against all odds like Bundy and Boone. Occasionally, these relationships even lead to disaster and further jail time, all in the name of love. Coming up, two inmates risk everything to be together. 
Hi, it's Vanessa from Parcast Network, and I'm thrilled to tell you that this month marks a huge milestone for us. It's the four-year anniversary of a podcast I host called Serial Killers. If you haven't had a chance to dive into the stories and psychology behind the most nightmarish murderers of all time, why wait? There's no better time than right now to start listening. Each week, we enter the minds, the methods, and the madness of the world's most sadistic serial killers. From the son of Sam, David Berkowitz, and the co-ed killer, Edmund Kemper, to Eileen Warnos, Ed Gein, and coming soon, the Night Stalker, Richard Ramirez. And this February, look out for our four-part special on couples who kill, following the worst love has to offer. Their names may sound ordinary, but their atrocities are anything but. You do not want to miss it. With hundreds of episodes available to binge and new ones released weekly, get to know the killers, crimes, and cases that forever changed the face of history. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. New episodes air every Monday and Thursday, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1986, Carol Ann Boone divorced her husband, serial killer Ted Bundy, after fiercely defending his innocence for years. Her story, sadly, is not uncommon among those who form relationships with convicted criminals. But though Boone went to extraordinary lengths to defend her partner, some have gone even further, like Stephen J. Russell. In the spring of 1995, 38-year-old Russell was incarcerated in Houston, Texas, serving time for insurance fraud. He felt lonely and directionless. Around a year earlier, his former boyfriend had died from complications related to AIDS. He was devastated, desperate to fill the void in his heart and find someone else to love. His prayers were finally answered one day when Russell met Philip Morris, a quiet, soft-spoken man in the prison law library. At first glance, they seem like a mismatched pair. Russell was a career con man, while Morris was a petite and baby-faced first-time inmate. His only crime was keeping a rental car too long. Russell fell in love with Morris on the spot. Right then and there, he vowed to do anything to keep his new crush in his life. But their relationship was based on deception. Russell lied to Morris from the first moment they met, introducing himself as an imprisoned attorney. He claimed he could help a friend of Morris's appeal his case. Appellate law isn't the sexiest topic, but somehow Russell and Morris forged a romantic connection through it. They courted each other through letters, passing them via other inmates. Their romance bloomed from there. Morris was impressed with Russell's apparent legal acumen and smooth-talking confidence. Meanwhile, Russell was attracted to Morris's helplessness. 
he became protective of his new partner, sometimes overly so. Even though they weren't in the same cell block, he always found a way to ensure Morris was comfortable. At one point, he reportedly paid to have a screaming inmate who annoyed Morris savagely beaten. But by mid-1995, things were beyond Russell's control. For a time, the two men were separated and confined to different parts of the prison. Though they were technically only a mile away from each other, Russell and Morris were unable to interact. They were so close, yet so far from being together. Even so, Russell refused to give up. The distance between them only intensified his attraction to Morris. He determined that with parole, he'd be released first and that they'd both be reunited by early 1996. So he came up with a plan to build a new life for them on the outside. Russell decided he was going to buy a big house and give Morris a lavish, luxurious life. He'd grown up in a relatively wealthy Virginia family and wanted to provide a similar experience for Morris. When he was released on parole in October of 1995, Russell took on odd jobs, trying first to fund their grand lifestyle through an honest living. Meanwhile, Morris was still languishing in prison, but Russell had a plan for that too, one that involved impersonating an attorney again. At that point, Morris supposedly still believed Russell was a legitimate lawyer. To keep up the persona, Russell took his con to the next level. He called himself Steve Rousseau and started posing as Morris's new defense attorney. The lie allowed him unlimited visits to his lover in jail. But just seeing each other wasn't enough. Russell needed Morris to be released. So he escalated his scam once more. He bribed a parole office administrator with a dozen roses to get Morris's release date moved up one month to December 1st, 1995. Then he negotiated an earlier discharge time with the prison warden, changing it from three in the afternoon to 8.30 in the morning. Every hour counted when it came to starting his life with Morris. On December 1st at 8.30 a.m. sharp, Morris walked out of prison a free man, thanks to Russell. After having breakfast together, Russell introduced him to the luxurious life he wanted them to live. The two men checked into a motel near Houston where they ate shrimp and drank a bottle of Moet champagne. 10 days later, they traveled to Key West, Florida for a honeymoon. Though same-sex marriage wasn't legal at the time, they were determined to spend the rest of their lives together. Over the following weeks, Russell and Morris fell deeper in love, but also realized they weren't exactly as perfect for each other as they thought. They struggled to have sex, possibly due to complications from Morris's diabetes. Outside of the bedroom, the pair spent their nights at bars where they drank heavily. Russell soon realized Morris was a totally different person when drunk. At 3 a.m. on December 20th, the couple had a blowout argument, culminating in a physical fight. After the altercation, they went their separate ways for the night. When they sobered up and reunited the next day, they apologized to each other. 
but the tension remained. Russell feared they were reaching their breaking point. In the book, I Love You, Philip Morris, Russell acknowledged that alcohol put a significant strain on their relationship. A few days later, on Christmas Day, he became even more annoyed at Morris, who spent the holiday hungover and regretful. Russell was apparently concerned about the excessive drinking, eating, and smoking. In his view, Morris was enjoying life on the outside a little too much. Russell agonized over his worries until he finally got the courage to confront Morris about them. At the end of their conversation, the couple admitted they were both depressed and allegedly started taking antidepressants. Russell and Morris's struggle to adjust to life outside of prison isn't uncommon in inmate relationships. According to a 2011 Chicago Tribune article, these marriages often fail, possibly because the couple has rarely spent time alone together before their release. Outside of prison, lovers typically have more time to adjust to each other and their day-to-day routines. For prison marriages, there is the additional challenge of acclimating to post-jail life. It was a recipe for disaster for Russell and Morris, especially since Russell was still living a lie. Morris seemingly remained under the false impression that he was a real lawyer. It was a dangerous misconception that Russell took even further following their honeymoon. Back in Houston, Morris introduced Russell as a lawyer to all of his family and friends. One acquaintance, Gaynell Hollenhead, even accepted Russell's help with a payment dispute involving an architect. To keep up his charade, Russell agreed to represent Hollenhead and actually help the case reach a successful agreement. He had never been prouder of a con. The outcome in the case pleased Hollenhead and, by extension, Morris. And all Russell wanted was to make his lover happy. But, perhaps because he couldn't be satisfied with a normal life, Russell ultimately refused to really listen to his partner. Morris wasn't into luxury and extravagance. He was fine with a stripped-back, simple existence. He enjoyed hanging out with his friends and going out drinking. While things were good enough as far as Morris was concerned, Russell needed more. He claimed that everything he did was for his lover, but that might have been just a convenient excuse to embark on new get-rich-quick schemes. On January 23, 1996, only four months after his prison release, Russell conned his way into a more prestigious job. By lying about his credentials, he became the chief financial officer of North American Medical Management, or NAMM. It was a job he was completely unqualified to do, and Russell had no intention of even trying. Over the course of five months, he embezzled $800,000 from the company through fraudulent accounting. He used the money to fuel an outrageous lifestyle, buying jet skis, Rolexes, and two Mercedes-Benz cars. Morris didn't ask for any of it, but he didn't complain either. Soon, Russell's purchases became even bigger. 
Because Morris wanted to live closer to his old stomping grounds, the couple searched for a larger house in more exclusive Houston neighborhoods. In April of 1996, Russell found what he was looking for. Instead of paying for the new property in full, Russell applied for a loan from Texas Commerce Bank. During the approval process, a loan officer noticed that nearly $800,000 had been deposited into a bank account shared by Russell and Morris. With more digging, the bank traced its origins back to NAMM. Russell was playing a dangerous game and he knew it, but he just couldn't stop lying. He got a sick rush from pulling the wool over other people's eyes, including his beloved Morris. But every con has an expiration date. On May 13th, 1996, Russell overheard his boss on the phone with Texas Commerce Bank. The jig was up. He ran out to the parking lot and rushed home as quickly as possible. On the way, he called Morris to give him a heads up and found him livid. By the end of the conversation, Morris realized Russell had been lying to him from the beginning. He'd had enough. He'd never asked for Russell to steal for him. Now he worried he would have to take the fall for it. He told Russell he was leaving before the cops arrested him too. After he hung up, Russell put the pedal to the metal. He no longer cared about getting caught by NAMM or the cops. He just had to stop his lover from leaving. He raced down the highway, only stopping to withdraw money at random ATMs along the way. He managed to collect thousands of dollars before authorities froze his accounts. By the time he arrived at their house, Morris was long gone. A few days later, Morris surrendered to police, knowing he'd eventually be linked to the crime. Russell, however, stayed on the lam for eight more days. On May 23, 1996, he returned to the house he and Morris once shared, only to be swarmed by a squad of police cars. Both Russell and Morris faced felony theft charges, even though Russell initially insisted that he acted alone. In the years following, Russell escaped jail at every opportunity, sometimes with plans to take Morris with him, but the authorities tracked him down each time. Because Russell's escapes and scams made a mockery of the Texas justice system, he was sentenced to an additional 99 years in prison. Locked up in solitary confinement, Russell longed for his lover for years. Morris was spared the isolation and was eventually released from prison in 2006. Today, the couple is no longer together. They occasionally exchange letters, but as of 2010, Russell told NPR that Morris had yet to visit him. Even so, Russell still carries a torch for his former lover, and seemingly always will. Despite Russell's single-minded devotion to Morris, the odds were always stacked against them. Because they met in prison, they experienced the loneliness and social stigma these couples often face. The ultimate failure of their relationship is reminiscent of Ted Bundy and Carol Ann Boone's split. They overcame countless obstacles in and outside of jail, 
But in the end, Russell's serial deception and repeated crimes were too much for Morris to take. Stories like theirs might make it seem impossible for enduring love to blossom in lockup, but there are some lucky couples who make it work, though it can come at a significant cost. Coming up, we discuss former Manson family member Susan Atkins' lifelong search for love. Now, back to the story. Finding love in lockup isn't easy. Ted Bundy and Carol Ann Boone's marriage was doomed from the start. Though Stephen J. Russell and Philip Morris were both in prison when they met, they couldn't make their relationship last either. These stories make one wonder if it's impossible to maintain a relationship with an inmate, but some couples defy the odds. Susan Atkins, formerly a member of Charles Manson's family, eventually formed a lasting relationship, but it took a few tries to get it right. In 1971, 23-year-old Atkins was convicted for her role in eight of the Manson family murders, including the killing of actress Sharon Tate. She hoped for parole in 1976, but her request was denied. In her 1977 memoir, Child of Satan, Child of God, Atkins wrote about the intense loneliness she experienced while in prison. She pursued a few fleeting relationships with men on the outside, but nothing stuck. For a while, Atkins found solace in religion, becoming a passionate born-again Christian while incarcerated. Four years later, she thought God had finally blessed her with lasting love. In 1981, she married self-proclaimed millionaire Donald Lee Leisure. Apparently, they'd met years earlier in 1965, but kept in touch over the years through letters and supposedly through extrasensory perception or ESP. Clearly, Leisure wasn't a typical straight-laced businessman. He was flamboyant and excessive, always signing the S in his surname with a dollar sign. Before he wed Atkins, he had been married an astounding 34 times. It didn't exactly build confidence in his ability to commit, but Atkins hoped that her connection with Leisure was genuine. In public, he seemed taken with Atkins' beauty, calling her Honey Bear. He made ambitious claims, telling his new wife he could get her a pardon from the White House. He declared to reporters that he'd spent $6.4 million to help free her. Because she had been denied parole several times before, the chance for freedom probably meant a lot. It may have even been a major reason Atkins began the relationship in the first place. Unfortunately for her, none of Leisure's promises ever materialized and the marriage was short-lived. Just a few months after the wedding, he fell in love with another woman. He divorced Atkins to marry wife number 36. Clearly, Leisure had commitment issues, but the union likely faced the same challenges inmate marriages often do. Isolation, lack of regular physical contact, and societal backlash. In the years following, Atkins continued to have male pen pals, but found many of them to be disappointing. 
Men all over were obsessed with the Manson murders, not with getting to know her. One was even banned from the prison. Eventually, Atkins stopped responding to letters altogether until one day in 1985. While checking her mail, Atkins came across a kind note from 22-year-old James Whitehouse. He wanted her advice about becoming a born-again Christian. Whitehouse was a college dropout who played in a small band in the San Francisco Bay Area. His life was filled with drugs, parties, and guns. It was a dangerous environment, and he desperately wanted an escape. But he'd become estranged from his family, and his friends were all involved in drugs. That's when he came across Vincent Bugliosi's book, Helter Skelter, the true story of the Manson murders. Whitehouse was fascinated by the case and the stories about Atkins becoming a born-again Christian in jail. That day in 1985, he reached out to her, asking for advice. And 37-year-old Atkins picked up a pen and wrote back. She recalled how her faith helped her and promised to be a source of support. From then on, they wrote to each other monthly. A year later, Whitehouse relocated to Los Angeles and visited Atkins in the California Institution for Women at Frontera. With her encouragement, he got his life together and enrolled in college again in 1987. Love gradually bloomed as the two of them helped each other. Whitehouse believed Atkins was truly sorry for the murder she'd helped commit and decided he needed her to stay in his life. He proposed to her four times before she finally agreed. On December 7, 1987, the couple got married in a prison administration building. Unlike the other stories we discussed, Atkins and Whitehouse's relationship only grew stronger after the wedding. Though Atkins was still serving her sentence, Whitehouse visited her regularly. In addition to conjugal visits, they often read the Bible together. Over the years, Atkins was denied parole several more times. Whitehouse grew frustrated and eventually even decided to become a lawyer to help his wife. In May of 1997, he graduated from Harvard Law School and passed the California State Bar six months later. All of it happened just in time for Atkins' next parole hearing, but she was denied again. Whitehouse kept trying, filing multiple appeals and complaints over the next decade, but none of it worked. The memory of the brutal Manson family murders was still burned into the public's mind. Sharon Tate's sister, Deborah, spoke at one hearing, saying Atkins showed no mercy in Tate's murder. Even so, Whitehouse and Atkins continued to fight even after she was diagnosed with terminal brain cancer in 2008. Doctors only gave her a few months to live. Whitehouse leveraged the prognosis to pursue parole and compassionate release in 2009. In California, compassionate release is an option for terminally ill inmates who have less than six months to live, and 61-year-old Atkins fit the bill. By that point, her cancer had taken over her body. Her left leg was amputated and her body was mostly paralyzed. On September 2nd, 2009, she had to be wheeled into the hearing on a gurney. She could barely talk. 
but White House assisted her with reading Psalm 23 during the hearing. The passage concludes, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Despite that loving display and her frail appearance, Atkins' request was denied yet again. Officials cited one major reason for the refusal. The Manson murders were too atrocious and dispassionate, even 40 years later. Three weeks later, on September 24, 2009, 61-year-old Atkins died with White House at her bedside. They were married for 21 years. Though Atkins and White House dealt with the same loneliness, social stigma, and financial burden that other inmate relationships face, they were able to stay together for over two decades. The key might have been White House's extreme patience and devotion. He dedicated his life to Atkins, throwing everything he had into getting her released from prison. Less than a year after her death, he told the Orange Coast magazine, Knowing Susan got me away from where I was before. It gave me goals, something to believe in, someone who believed in me. Perhaps that's what enabled the two of them to outlast so many other relationships, an absolute faith in each other and the powerful religious beliefs which accompanied their love. As we've seen over the course of this series, Love in lockup is difficult to sustain. Romantic relationships with inmates can be dangerous, psychologically fraught, and exploitative. Even so, love is something people are always willing to take risks for, even if it means breaking the law to be together. The lucky few are able to find their soulmate and stick by their side no matter the obstacles. But it requires work, love, and above all, compassion on both sides. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with another episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Bruce Kitovich. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Mallory Cara, with writing assistance by Terrell Wells, fact-checking by Bennett Logan, and research by Chelsea Wood, Mickey Taylor, and Brian Petrus. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa again. Before you go, don't forget to check out the Spotify original from Parcast, Serial Killers. Each week, join me and my co-host, Greg, for a deep dive into the minds and madness of history's most notorious murderers. You can binge hundreds of episodes, four years' worth, and catch new episodes every Monday and Thursday. Listen to Serial Killers, free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.